copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes today in chapter 10. We're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago, picking up in verse 2 of chapter 10 and uh, reading to the end of the chapter today. That reading begins on page 558 in our cart Bibles, 558. And you can see that we are uh, within the end of Ecclesiastes. We're rounding the corner. Lord willing, after today, there will be three more sermons to cover the rest of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and as we finish Ecclesiastes, with the Lord's help, we're going to move on to look at some of the Old Testament minor prophets. Uh, with the rest of our time together in the spring, we're going to be looking first at Joel, and then hopefully at Malachi when we're done with that, seeing some of those uh, smaller books that we don't always get to fit in. Uh, but we're going to be going there after Ecclesiastes. But today, in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, as you look at this passage, you will notice that it's hard to get a handle on. Uh, it seems to be going in a lot of different directions. Uh, as I read this week, the commentaries, uh, they said over and over again, there seems to be no connection between this and what just, it just scattered in a sense. But you'll be helped if you just look at, at the main theme that you can see over the, the, the surface of all of it, this idea of the difference between wisdom and folly. You'll hear those words repeated over and over again, uh, the difference between wisdom and folly, and what that means for us as believers as we live in the world that the Lord has created. And so that's our theme today, wisdom and folly, and, uh, and walking in wisdom with the Lord. Uh, before we read this passage together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for the divine logos, the eternal wisdom, Christ our Savior who was incarnate for our sakes and took on a human body and has that body now. We thank you for Christ our human and divine Savior uh, who obeyed perfectly your law, lived in absolute wisdom in all ways and gave himself as a sacrifice for us, now seated at the right hand of the Father. Help us, Lord. Uh, to receive the wisdom of your Holy Spirit as you lead us, as you guide us in following you and in trusting you. We pray that you would do this. Help us to see Christ. Help us to love you and to serve you in your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, beginning to read in verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in the low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If a serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man can, tell, can know what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. 
The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thought, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, uh, verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Uh, and despite the political spin that some people might like to try and put on that verse, it's not about Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it's teaching us something far more universal. As I've already mentioned, it's teaching us this vastly wide gulf that exists between the life of wisdom and the life of folly. In another place, in a different context, the scripture says, as the east is from the west, so it is with the right and the left hand. In the ancient world, the right hand was the hand of skill and strength and honor. And so by his right hand, a tradesman would earn his living, and at the right hand of kings, advisors would sit down, and to trend in the direction of the right was to go in the right way. It was to, to go in the direction of success and prosperity, and to move to the left meant weakness. It meant folly. It meant the expectation of disaster. It's vastly uh, different a life between wisdom and folly. And then verse 3 adds to that description. It says, where there is a fool following his heart in the wrong direction, you're going to see him coming a mile away. Even when he walks on the road, he tells everyone he is, an, he is a fool. In other words, he doesn't have to open his mouth to tell you. You can see it. And here's something that we know to be universal because this is uh, that thing that shows up in our frantic stress dreams. Those dreams that you have about showing up to school without your assignments or showing up to the dinner party without your trousers or showing up uh, to church without your sermon, though that last one might just be me. There is something universally human about this fear of being exposed in the eyes of other people, this fear of other people seeing you for the fool that deep down you probably even assume that you are. And Solomon's telling us that the only way to avoid that fate is to get your heart in the right place. Not just to make wise choices, but to be a wise person. That's what he's telling us here. And, and, and close to the end of Ecclesiastes, I think that's an interesting argument. Solomon's been on this search for the ultimate issues of life. What does our living mean if dying erases our living? What can we think about the future if we don't know what's going to happen to us next? And now close to the end, he's talking about words and work and the way that we deal with politics. And we're tempted to look at Solomon and say, is that it? Is that all you've got? Isn't there anything better? Isn't there anything more significant when we come down to the wire at the end? No, but if you understand what the Bible has to say about practical wisdom, if you understand the weight that Scripture places on daily wise living, then you'll understand how significant this answer is. 
It's Proverbs that tells us that the heart is the wellspring of life. It's Jesus who tells us that out of the abundance of our heart, our mouths speak. It's Solomon who tells us that it is by the heart that we incline to the left or to the right, to folly or to wisdom. And so actually, this is the ultimate question. Life is short. The future is unknown. And now that you know that, will you walk in wisdom? Do you have a heart that has been changed from the inside out? Are you still trying to live in a way to figure things out on your own? Are you still just trying to get by without being exposed as a fool? Are you still just trying to look good in your own eyes and other people's eyes? Or do you have a heart that has been changed by the wisdom of God? Do you walk in the wisdom that comes with the fear of the Lord? That's what's at stake in these Small daily things. Well, Solomon's showing us here uh, in three places where the heart of wisdom or the heart of folly shows up in our lives. It shows up, first of all, in the way that we deal with politics. My heads up as we get into this first point that this is by far the longest of our three points. Uh, partly because by the time we've done the heavy lifting with politics, we will have laid the ground rules to deal with the other ones. But also partly because there are two clusters of Proverbs in this passage that deal with wisdom in this area. The first set shows up in verses 4 to 7, dealing with uh, rulers and authority and politics. And the second set shows up in verses 16 to 20. And, and both of these short mini-passages are showing us uh, the same truth together. It's the hard reality that there are some political realities that we just can't do anything about. So verse 5 tells us, There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. This is the folly of the wrong person in the right place. You know how it goes, where fools and and cronies are appointed to positions of power, and then you have the people with uh, a history, a, 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 a track record of wisdom and success, and they're overlooked and they're sidelined. Normally in politics, this is a matter of mutual backscratching. It takes uh, a village to raise a child. It takes an entire party of lobbyists and special interest representatives to get a politician into power, and then once that politician gains a seat, they're supposed to pay back the favor to their friends and put them in cabinet positions and special appointments and places where they can have some influence. You know, in America, we like to think that we have the control over these things. We have the all-important power of the vote, the democratic process. And so we won't be the ones who, who live under the authority of people we haven't chosen. But let me ask you, when was the last time you voted for a Supreme Court justice? Do you know who elects the Board of Health in the town where you live? When was the last time your local library sent out a ballot asking you which books and which programs you would like them to have on offer in the children's section? It's true that we make the decisions about the people who make those decisions, but that doesn't mean that we can guarantee the outcome. Some political realities we simply can't do anything about. There are people in power. We might think that they're foolish, but we can't change it. And sometimes the people that you don't want to have authority over your daily life end up with authority over your daily life. 
If that's the case for us, imagine the situation in Solomon's day. Imagine the believers we pray for now in Bangladesh and in Nigeria, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. There are political realities that you can't change. Folly is set in many high places, and often there's nothing we can do about it. What's worse, Solomon's telling us, is that often that folly that sits in high places has disastrous consequences for a whole nation. That's the point of verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, when your princes feast in the morning. Now notice that he doesn't go from there and give you a point-by-point checklist of what to do to correct this problem. He simply breathes out a lament. Woe to you, O land, when this is the case. There are things that happen and you can't change them and all you can do is hang your head in prayer and mourning. All you can do sometimes is to watch things fall apart under foolish leadership. I think that's why actually verse 18 is added. Uh, We can see the way that it applies in every area of life, but I think it's also a metaphor of the way that things fall apart under the foolish leadership of people. The way that one indulgent leader can bring down the standards of of a whole nation. So verse 18 says, through sloth the roof sinks in, Through indolence, the house leaks. And I can vouch for the truth of that in these old New England homes. Right? All you have to do to to demolish a home is to do nothing for a very long time. Things will break all on their own. Pipes will burst, and paint will crack, and ice dams will develop, and sooner or later, things will just fall apart. And eventually that lack of maintenance is going to be catastrophic. The same thing happens to people with poor leaders. We could probably translate this into just about any authority structure you can think of. You can see it play out in nations. You can see it play out in businesses. You can see it play out in families. You can see it play out in churches. Where nobody is thinking wisely and strategically, and maintaining and planning for the future, inertia sets in. The rafters sag. The roof starts to leak. You can see it happen morally. Tiny drips of of compromise turn into a flood of debauchery. And those churches where initially sin is winked at or ignored become those churches where sin is celebrated. You can see it happen missionally as well. Give it time and the structure will settle. The church will realize that it's easier to have fellowship within our established community than it is to engage the unbelievers beyond our walls. Easier than it is to fulfill the missional role as a city set as a beacon on a hill. You can watch the structure settle and the inertia set in. That same degradation, missional, moral, that takes hold in a country or a home or a business. And woe to you, O land, when your child is a king, when your king is a child, when your leaders are marked by the immaturity that lives for indulgence rather than development. Truth is that often that's out of your hands. However, there are some political realities that we can affect with wisdom. It's the second half of this this first point, that Solomon describes uh, two areas of direct contact between citizens and the people who rule over them. 
We see that in verse 4. It speaks to wisdom when the powers that be have a problem with us. Right? Verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. And then the issue is reversed in verse 20. Here's a situation where we have a problem with the powers that be. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. If a bird of the air will carry your voice, some winged creature will tell the matter. Now what you should probably be impressed with in both of those verses is the sanctified self-awareness that we see in Solomon. Solomon is a king. An ancient absolute monarch, the likes of which we don't see very often, if at all anymore. Solomon is a king, and we ought to expect him to assume that the king is always right. Both of these verses point out that very often the ruler is going to get it wrong as well. So verse 4 seems to be uh, describing a situation where the anger of the ruler is unreasonable. And that happens. Right? Maybe the king's having a bad day. He's a little cranky. He's a little touchy about some bad counsel he received. It still happens today. There are times when the political power is unfairly aimed at people who have done no wrong. And in that situation, Solomon's saying that the wise thing to do is to stay put and stay calm. Whatever you do, don't respond in the way that we all like to respond, and that is with a huff. You stamp your feet and you puff out your chest and you raise your voice to make sure that other people know you're serious. You defend yourself. You respond in a huff. Well, that's not wise in the presence of a king. It's not wise today either, actually. Well, there are times when the authorities come down on the wrong person. There are times when believers are going about faithfully following their consciences and serving the Lord, and it can get them into trouble with local officials. And the proper response is calm cooperation. Maintain your place and maintain your stand for truth. Don't leave your place. Calmness, he says, will lay great offenses to rest. Now, verse 20 also seems to be describing a ruler who can't be counted on to act wisely. In fact, this is a parallel to a piece of advice that Solomon's already given us. You remember back in chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. He says, don't take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. You yourself know, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. If anybody should have the wisdom to respond and to take things in stride when they're criticized, it should be the people in authority. They should be used to it, perhaps. They should have thicker skin, perhaps. Well, we can't always count on that. So chapter 10, he warns the other side of the equation. We don't always have the rulers we want. We don't always like the decisions they make. And we can get angry at the things that are outside of our control. So what should we do? Well, the piece of advice he gives us is to watch what you say. In fact, watch what you think. A step further, criticism and curses are not going to help your cause. At best, they can, they can make you crotchety and cantankerous. Worse, they can get you into trouble. There's another place where we need to do a little bit of cultural translation, right? Because our situation is different than it was in that day. We have freedom of speech. We have the protected right to complain about anything we want without repercussion. Don't forget that the First Amendment is trumped by a greater command. Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God 
nor curse a ruler of your people. We can praise the Lord that in our country we have, we have space for discourse and for appeal when we don't agree with what's going on. For the wise-hearted believer, there is never space for the kind of speech that dishonors those that the Lord has placed in authority. There's a lot happening in this, uh, this chapter, this passage, dealing with, with politics and wisdom. But as we examine it together, I think a picture begins to emerge. We begin to see that godly wisdom shows up first in recognizing the difference between those things that we can only mourn over and those things that we can actually control. You can't always choose who gets to be in charge. You can't always control what the leaders do with the people that they lead. But you can respond wisely when human authority intersects with your life. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 5, he tells the church to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Paul might not have been talking about politics there, but notice he says, don't be anxious for anything. In everything, offer prayer, offer supplication to the Lord. In this way, you will let your reasonableness be known to everybody around you. The reasonableness that he's talking about is the reasonableness of knowing that the Lord is still in control. There are things that are out of your hands and things that you can't do anything about. And wisdom doesn't doesn't stay awake all night with an ulcer in its stomach trying to figure out how we can change the things that are unchangeable. Wisdom is reasonable and believes that the Lord is still on his throne. So in every circumstance, in every trial, whatever the future holds, the wise heart lives reasonably. The wise believer trusts and gives thanks to the Lord who directs his people. In fact, that kind of wise reasonableness is the only way we can do the things that we're called to do. It's the only way that we can keep from getting huffy. When misguided anger is coming down on us, it's the only way we can pray for our leaders rather than curse them when they do the things that we don't like. So we have to start with the wisdom to know that the Lord is at hand. So here's our first point. The wise heart shows up in the way that we deal with politics. It also has something to do with our daily work. Now, in some ways, as I mentioned, the, the message about uh, wisdom and work is, uh, is the same as the message about wisdom and politics. Circumstances that are outside of our control. In the context of work, that means there are dangers, there are accidents that we can't always avoid. Take a look at verses 8 and 9. It gives us the score. It says, he who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. Now, some of that language is familiar to us because uh, we've read the Psalms, and we know that in other places in Scripture, particularly the Psalms, it speaks about people digging pits and falling into them themselves, and there the idea is of retribution. There the pit is something that's being dug to entrap the innocent. Uh, these wicked schemes that are being breathed out against God's people, and, and there it's a promise and a hope that, that the, uh, the plots of wicked people will turn around and, and bite them. It will come to, to rest on their own heads. But here, the context is completely neutral. You know, 
pits were legitimate things to dig sometimes. It was used in, uh, in hunting to trap wild animals to provide for a family. Sometimes stone walls had to be torn down in order to be rebuilt or, or replaced, and there were serpents that stayed in the stone walls. And it goes on to say that you know, stones have to be quarried and logs have to be split, and in every situation there's danger lurking. There are occupational hazards, and we can add our own examples. Uh, we might write our own proverbs and say, he who writes code for a living will develop carpal tunnel. And she who keeps the home will be in danger of isolation, and those who manage people will have their patients tested. The electrician is going to get shocked sooner or later. There's nothing more commonplace than the work that we do every day, and there's nothing more predictably unexpected than a workplace injury. This is boots-on-the-ground wisdom, folks. This is another reminder that wisdom isn't just for philosophizing about ultimate issues but it gets played out in the daily pursuits that take up our time and our energy. And so specifically in the context of our work, Solomon wants us to see wisdom knows when to act and when to wait. That's what wisdom looks like in relation to our work. It knows when to act and when to wait. So verses 10 and 11 give us both sides. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before its charm, there is no advantage to the charmer. That's one of those strange proverbs that you read, and it seems like you have no idea what this means. But connect it to the idea of occupation. Right? We think of a snake charmer, and we have in our mind's eye maybe somebody in an Indian marketplace gathering shekels from the passers-by. This is an occupation in those days. It was a legitimate way that people would make a living, maybe by, uh, by doing it in a marketplace, but also maybe by helping to rid a home of snakes. And if you can gather these deadly serpents before they bite anybody else, that's a good thing, but that's a job that requires some pretty quick action. If you slip, if you wait, if you hesitate, it could be deadly. On the other hand, cutting wood and, and any kind of woodworking or skill or, or, uh, or forming or fashioning of the, the, the natural world, it sometimes means you've got to slow down, you've got to sharpen up. And if you apply the wrong strategy to the wrong tasks, things can go south pretty quickly. This all seems very mundane, I know. Uh, but when you take these verses about work all together, they're teaching us one of the fundamental uh, elements of biblical wisdom. And that is the need to be able to discern the right time to act. It's a problem that Solomon has been wrestling with in Ecclesiastes. God knows what the times are all about. The Lord makes all things beautiful, all things perfect in their time, but we don't know what happens from beginning to end. We don't know which actions at what time will lead to prosperity or to our downfall. We can't be sure. We live with this uncertainty about when it's the right time to do what we think we ought to do. And some people live with that uncertainty, and it gets into their skin, and it, it overwhelms them. It leads to this sort of paralyzing sense that if we can't know for certain how things will turn out, we might as well not do anything. There are people on the other side who always sort of pridefully assume that everything's going to turn out okay in their favor, no matter what they do, no matter when they do it. These are the people that James talks about in chapter 4. 
Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And so he's pointing out there are two unwise ways to work. We can approach our work with this paralyzing uncertainty, or we can approach our work with blustering overconfidence. Both of them are foolish. Now, to use Paul's terminology, neither one of those is reasonable. Wisdom approaches work with the reasonableness of knowing that the Lord is still in charge. And so we can take the opportunities that present to us, and, and we can act when it seems like it's wise and right to act, and we don't need to be paralyzed by the fear of the unknown, but we don't need to be uh, overconfident either. There's a balance that needs to be struck here. But it means that we don't have to know what's going to happen at work tomorrow. Or even if we're going to make it through the workday, so long as we commit our steps to the Lord, so long as we trust in His direction, we can walk in wisdom in the small things of life. So, the heart of wisdom shows up in our politics. It shows up in our work. It also shows up in the words that we speak. No surprise here. All right, one of the constant themes of Biblical wisdom is the need to use our words wisely. Read Proverbs and you will find uh, words that heal and lips that wound in every single chapter of the book. It was James who says that, that this is such a big issue because there's no sinner alive who has managed to learn how to tame the tongue. Ecclesiastes, we see the same thing. Our words are this snapshot into our daily wisdom, but they also point to ultimate issues of life. Consider the, the picture that we have here, the way that the words of a fool consume themselves and everybody else around them. So verse 12 says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. That's an intriguing mental picture. Imagine an all-you-can-eat buffet where with every word you speak, you take another bite of yourself. You take another bite of your reputation. You take another bite of your self-respect. You take another bite of your relationships. You take another bite of your future. And it's senseless self-indulgence. It's all fueled by vanity, by the need to just keep on talking, to keep on being seen as right. And just like a buffet, some people don't know when to stop. And I bet if you think for a minute, you can probably come up with a few people you know who fit that description. Maybe their speech begins harmlessly enough. That's the idea in verse 13, that run-of-the-mill foolishness. Maybe it's a, a tasteless joke, it's a, it's a hollow brag, it's that petty gossip that nobody wants to listen to, but everybody has to hear anyway. Or maybe like verse 14, they're the person who loves to make predictions about things that nobody could know about the future. So it's the woman who's always telling you who's going to come into trouble, which of your cousins is going to ruin their life with another failed marriage. Maybe he's the guy who's always talking about the projects he's going to pursue and the business ventures and the deals he's going to close and isn't life going to be great when everything comes together for him. And at first you just sort of roll your eyes and you wait for it to pass and you hope that they'll stop talking, but it almost never stops there. If there's anything that foolish talk loves, it is an audience. Someone to listen to it. 
someone to take the folly seriously, someone to validate these these half-baked plans, these sarcastic jabs that pass for wit in our culture. So verse 13 begins harmlessly enough, but then it speaks of this downward degradation, this spread like gangrene. It moves from folly to stupidity, from stupidity to insanity, from insanity to outright wickedness. Before you know it, the, the foolish words are leading other fools astray. The audience becomes an accomplice, and one self-consuming fool destroys another, and you've seen it happen. Not so the words of the wise. Well, the words of the wise are meant to give grace to those who hear. And so you notice this footnote in the ESV on verse 12. Uh, the text at the top says, The words of the wise man's mouth win him favor. Better is the footnote. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. How different from the words of the fool. The words of a fool are ravenous. They will devour everything that you give to them. But the words of a wise man, the words of a wise woman give life. They're words that are carefully chosen to bless rather than curse. They're words that are prayed over and thought through. They're words that are aimed at building up everybody who listens. They're words that give grace to those who hear. It's such a small thing, such a, a daily discipline and duty. Such a small picture into the wisdom of our hearts. But here we come back to where we began in the beginning. You know, there's nothing in these verses that is earth-shattering. This is not one of these fire and brimstone, faith and salvation, judgment and, uh, and damnation sort of passages. This is boots on the ground, daily grind of wise living. And, and yet, if you're a Christian, this is serious business. It's Paul, again, Philippians 4, 5, who tells us to let our reasonableness be known to all. It's seen by those around us. Paul again in Colossians 4, 5, who tells us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, to always let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. It's Jesus who tells us that, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You see, wisdom for the believer is an ultimate issue, but why? Is it just so that your business can succeed? Is it just so that you'll look like someone who's got their life together? You don't have to be worried about being exposed as a fool. The scripture urge believers to wisdom because it merely makes a difference in our work and our words and the health of our nation. Is it possible that wisdom is insignificant as all that? Or is wisdom a matter of kingdom representation? Does the wisdom of God's people in a thousand daily interactions show the world who we believe in and who we're living for? Does the wisdom of our work declare that we're seeking a city whose builder and founder is God himself? Do our wise interactions with politics broadcast the fact that our hope is not in princes or in politicians, but in the one who made the heavens and the earth and all that they contain? Does the wisdom of our speech reflect the patience, the perseverance of our Savior who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth? When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So this is what it comes down to, dear Christian. If Christ has become your wisdom by faith, then the Lord calls you to walk in the same wise way in which Christ walked. Not because your, your work and your words are the ultimate realities, but because Christ gave his life to win your wisdom. Christ became a sacrifice to redeem even the small things of your daily life. He came to, to claim every word of your mouth and to renew every aspiration of your politics. He came to empower every task you complete in the work that you do every day. Daily wisdom is an ultimate issue for the believer. Because in all these small things, when we walk in wisdom, we not only show the world who we are, but we show the world who we belong to. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let the wisdom of your heart be seen by those around you. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. That's the call for believers who know the Lord. To walk in the way in which he walked. Knowing that we, as well as our wisdom, belongs to the Lord himself. Please join me in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you that uh, your wisdom isn't only for Sunday mornings, but is also for the rest of our week, the rest of our relationships and interactions. Your wisdom through Christ Jesus is for an eternity, and you have promised to gather your people to yourself. You have made him wisdom from God for us, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We thank you for sending your Son, our Savior. We thank you that he is our shepherd and leads us in paths of righteousness. We pray that you would so lead us in wisdom. For your name's sake, we ask in Jesus' name.